Again, I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. All of us believers, according to to the will of God and our Father. Thank you, Salem Bible Church believers, for this wonderful day, wonderful lunch you gave us. Those amazing little desserts with the icing in the middle. (laughs) Don't tell my wife, but I had two of them. (laughs) If the bag had more, I would have had more. (laughs) Wonderful. And this is maybe the sleepy hour. There's a dog in the back that slept through every message. (laughs) So, still sleeping. Let's pray together. Thank you, our Heavenly Father, for this good day, for these wonderful messages from your word, and uh, help us now to better understand how we are to approach your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Why should we hold fast to dispensationalism? We should hold fast to that because it is a movement which is defined by consistent literal interpretation. The word consistent is the key, because those who are not dispensational do interpret the Bible literally in many, many places, but they do not do it consistently, and we're going to illustrate that. Now, what is literal interpretation? Literal interpretation seeks to understand the Bible in its plain natural, and normal sense. It looks for the clear and obvious meaning of the text. God does not want to hide his truth from his believers. But he wants to communicate his truth in a very clear and understandable way. The believer's responsibility is to simply take God at his word. God means what he says, and he says what he means. The literal interpreter does not look for hidden meaning, he looks for the obvious sense of the text. And the literal interpreter does not try to read between the lines, but rather he reads the lines. He reads the text in order to determine its plain and simple meaning in light of the normal meaning of the words, the context, and the normal rules of grammar. So our rule is, if when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, lest it result in nonsense. Now, what do the uh, reform people, what's their rule? And non-dispensationalists, they say, when the plain sense makes good sense, then seek some other sense, lest you end up agreeing with the dispensationalists. Now, I want to give you some examples of how non-dispensationalists are inconsistent when it comes to interpreting the Bible literally. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. And the very last, uh, second to last verse, verse 30. Genesis 1 and verse 30. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, 
wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat or for food. And it was so. Now, non-dispensationalists come to this verse, they take it literally. They really believe just what it said, that before the fall of man, animals did not eat meat. They were plant eaters. And they believe that. They take it literally. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, a passage you're familiar with. Verse 6. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. What would happen today if you go to a zoo and throw in straw to the lion cage? Not very interested. The non-dispensationalist does not take these words at face value. He says that's never going to happen. But if your God could do that at the beginning, and animals before the fall were plant-eating animals, and you believe that, why can't your God do that in the kingdom? You know why? They don't believe in a kingdom. They do not believe on a kingdom, that a kingdom will be established on this earth. And that these conditions will never take place that, that are described here in Isaiah 11. You know, there was a Russian zookeeper who once boasted that in our zoo, the wolf lies down with the lamb. But he failed to tell you that they had to put a new lamb in there every day. <laughs> you see, these people, the non-dispensationalists, they say, well, an earthly kingdom, that's a carnal kingdom. We can't have an earthly kingdom. That's carnal. But in the context of this passage, notice verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The whole context of this kingdom passage when Christ rules on earth is in the context of the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. That is not a carnal kingdom. That is a spiritual kingdom. And these animals are going to act exactly as God describes it in this passage. What an amazing time that will be. Children playing with poisonous snakes that won't be poisonous at that time. Now, if there is no future kingdom as described by the prophets, if the promises given to Israel are now given over to the church, what does this mean? Well, again, God has broken his promises. Think about the plagues of Egypt. Now, you know if you read in the early chapters of Exodus, you'd read about the frogs that were sent 
and uh, the waters turned to blood, and on and on, those different plagues. And non-dispensationalists take that literally. They say those things really did happen to the land of Egypt. God did judge those people in those amazing ways. But when you come to the book of Revelation, and you have the worldwide revelation plagues, the seal judgments, and uh, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, then they say, that's never going to happen. Why do you believe the one and not believe what Revelation teaches? Look in Revelation chapter 6. And verse 8, the fourth seal plague. And I looked and behold a pale horse, and the name that sat upon him was death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. This passage indicates that one-fourth of the world's population will be killed. In this one judgment. Look at chapter 9 and verse 18. By these three was the third part of men killed by the fire, by the smoke, and by the brimstone which issued out of their nostrils. This is the sixth trumpet plague. And this passage indicates that one third of the world's population will die. The implications from the, third, from the fourth seal plague and the sixth trumpet plague are astounding when compared together. If one-fourth of the world's population will die, and later one-third will die, this means that the original population of the world will be reduced by one-half just by those two plagues, not even considering any of the other revelation plagues. Do we take those words literally? What an awesome time that will be for the earth dwellers. Now, there are many non-dispensationalists who believe that these plagues of revelation have already been taken, have already taken place. They're called preterists. They believe that these prophecies were fulfilled in the past in or around 70 AD. But my friends, if we understand these plagues in the natural and normal way as they're described, there's no way that they could have been fulfilled. There's no way that the world's population was reduced in half uh, back in 70 AD. These plagues must await future fulfillment. Now, my friends, think about the tabernacle. If you were to go to Exodus 25 and follow in the following chapters, you would find a detailed description of the tabernacle with its curtains, loops, knobs, sockets, pillars, all the pieces of furniture, detailed measurements. And our non-dispensational friends say, yes, we believe there was a literal structure, the tabernacle, that was exactly according to the description we're given in Exodus. They believe that. They take it literally. Now think about the temple. If you were to go to 1 Kings chapter 6, 
you would read a detailed description of Solomon's temple. The porch, the chambers, the inner sanctuary, all these measurements. And our friends would say, yes, that temple was literally built according to those divine specifications. But when you go to Ezekiel 40 and the chapters that follow, it's speaking about a kingdom temple. And it's very specific again. It gives you all kinds of details. Now, those chapters in Ezekiel are so detailed that the Reformation Study Bible has given you a chart showing Ezekiel's temple. Now, the Reformation Study Bible is like the Schofield Bible of Reformed Theology. And they have this detailed chart talks about the court, the outer court, the pavement, uh, the different outer gateway, the inner gateway, the tables for killing sacrifice, the chambers for the singers, the vestibule of the temple, the most holy place, uh, the courtyard, the inner court, the, even the priest's cooking places, and kitchens. And it's all diagrammed and outlined. Now, I believe there really will be a temple like that in the coming kingdom age. They have a problem because they don't believe in a coming kingdom on earth. So listen to what they say. Ezekiel's restored temple is not a blueprint, even though it was so detailed they could draw a picture of it. But it's a vision that stresses the purity and spiritual vitality, the ideal place of worship and those who will worship there. It is not intended for an earthly physical fulfillment. In other words, this temple we we just drew a detailed sketch of is never going to be built on this earth, even though God said it would be. That's an example of not being consistent in interpretation. Yes, I believe the tabernacle, I believe Solomon's temple, but I don't believe there will be a future earthly temple in the kingdom. Well, let's talk about fishing. Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. You know this passage. Verse 4, And when he had left speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. Simon answering said unto Master, we've toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word will I let down the net. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fish, and their net brake. Our non-dispensational friends take that literally. They say they were real fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. They caught a huge amount of fish, just like the Bible describes. Their nets broke. Everything about this they take literally. All right, with that in mind, go to Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47. And verse 8. Then said he unto me, These waters issue out toward the east country and go down into the desert and into the sea. That's the Dead Sea which being brought forth unto the sea, the waters shall be healed. 
the waters of the Dead Sea will be healed. And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth whithersoever the river shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed. Everything shall live whither the river cometh. Verse 10, it shall come to pass that the fishers, the fishermen, shall stand upon it from Engedi, that's the west side of the Dead Sea, even unto Enegleam, that's a little uncertain where that location is, but some scholars think it was right near the area where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Both of these are Dead Sea locations. They shall be a place to spread forth nets. Their fish shall be according to their kinds. They'll catch all kinds of species of fish, even as the fish of the great sea, exceeding many. The great sea is the Mediterranean. Can you imagine catching fish in the Dead Sea? Impossible today. The fish come swimming down the Jordan River, hit the Dead Sea, boom, they die. Amazing. God says it. That's normal. We're just reading what it says. Taking it in its normal sense, my friends, the God who can bring life out of death is going to totally transform the Dead Sea and make it the living sea. And during the kingdom age, I hope to do some fishing there. <laughs> and uh, maybe God will let me rule over the city of En Gedi during the kingdom. So I'm nearby to this amazing fishing sea. I wrote to Gary DeMar, a well-known preterist author and a leading critic of dispensationalism. He's the one that wrote this book called Last Day's Madness. And the question I asked him was very simple. I said, Ezekiel 47 and other passages teach that there will be a river flowing from the temple, emptying into the Dead Sea, with the result that the waters of the Dead Sea will be healed so that fish will live there and fishermen will fish there. When was this fulfilled? Now, his answer was lengthy, but the essence of it was this. He says, this passage in Ezekiel 47 has already been fulfilled by Jesus Christ, who is our river of life. That is an example of spiritualizing the text. This text simply means that Christ is our river of life. That's the very opposite of literal interpretation. The Bible teaches in plain language that the Dead Sea will become a living sea with fishermen catching fish. And I believe that because God said it. But you can't have people fishing in, during the kingdom. That would be a carnal kingdom. No, that would be a spiritual kingdom. Fishing is a spiritual activity. <laughs> the name of my canoe is Visitation. And when people call the house and ask where I am, my wife tells them I'm out on Visitation. <laughs> and an earthly kingdom is not a carnal kingdom, just like the Garden of Eden was not a carnal garden. 
even though it was on earth. Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah chapter 23. Now, our non-dispensational friends, when they read about God's amazing miracle at the Red Sea, they take that literally. They really believe that God parted the waters and the Israelites passed through and the waters crashed down upon the Egyptian army and destroyed them. They believe that really happened, just like God described But look at this, chapter 23, verse 7. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country, and from all countries whither I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. God is here saying that there will be a future miracle that will be so great and so amazing that the Jews will no longer even talk about the Red Sea miracle. Instead, they will be talking about the regathering miracle. That God took the Jews from every place on earth and brought them back to the land in a miraculous way. And Jesus said he's even going to use angels to do that, Matthew 24. But non-dispensationalists do not believe that the Jews will ever be regathered to their land because the church has replaced Israel. Israel disobeyed God, so they lose out on God's promises. And the church inherits the blessings that were supposed to go to Israel, that kind of thing. We can go on and on and give you other examples of inconsistent literal interpretation. There's a paper on the back table uh, called Consistent Literal Interpretation that gives you more examples. I hope you'll pick up a copy. Why should we hold fast to dispensational theology? Because it correctly distinguishes between the church and Israel. Now, see our paper in the back called A Comparison and Contrast Between Israel and the Church. I don't have time to go into all those details, but that should help you. R.C. Sproul Jr. wrote a brief article or editorial which appeared in Table Talk magazine, December 1998. In this article, Mr. Sproul Jr. claimed to be a Jew. He claimed to be a spiritual Israelite, even though he was a Gentile. So here we have a saved Gentile claiming to be a Jew. And here's what he said. We believe the answer to the question, what about the Jews, is this. Here we are. Now, I shared a comment. I I shared this very comment with a friend of mine who's a converted Jew. His name's Arnold Fruchenbaum. He was born in Russia after his parents were released from a communist prison. With the help of the Israeli underground, his family escaped from behind the Iron Curtain. He received Orthodox Jewish training while living in Germany from 1947 to 1951. Then his family immigrated to New York. He's a dedicated servant of Christ and a respected author. 
when he was told, when I told him about John uh, Sproul Jr.'s comment, what about the Jews? Here we are. Well, here's what Arnold said. It's a good thing he was not declaring this on the streets of Berlin, Germany around 1941. We need to make proper biblical distinctions. And it's so simple. Give none offense to the Jew, the Gentile, and the church of God. Is that hard to understand? There's three groups of people. The Jew, the Gentile, and the believers. The church of God. It's not complicated. There's the, there's the unbelieving Jews. There's the unbelieving Gentiles. And there's the believing Jews and Gentiles, the church of God. It's simple. That's the distinctions God makes. And we need to agree with God. Now, there's two papers in the back on this. One paper is called, Is R.C. Sproud Jr. Really a Jew? The other paper is called, Are Believing Gentiles Really Jews? So help yourself to those who are free. And there's also an important paper showing that the term Israel or Israelite is never used of a saved Gentile. It goes through every passage in the New Testament where those terms are used. It is never used of the church in general, and it is never used of saved Gentiles in particular. Now, third, why should we hold fast to dispensationalism? Because of the biblical distinctions that it makes. And we just mentioned one, the difference between Israel and the church. I want to share my own personal testimony. I was saved as a freshman college student at Wesleyan University, thanks to the testimony of a fellow college student, a fellow freshman that many of you know, Stephen Thorpe. And uh, I came to know the Lord that year. So here I am, I have a newfound love for the Bible, and I'm at a university where it's impossible to take any kind of religion courses that would ever help you, because the teachers don't even believe the Bible. But I had a hunger to learn more of God's Word. And I took the easiest major you could possibly take, which back then was psychology, not because I love psychology, because I wanted more time to study the Bible. And what I decided to do, I enrolled in the Schofield Bible Correspondence Course from Moody Bible Institute, which I could study along with my university studies. That course was so helpful to me. I don't even know if they still offer it. But uh, here was volume number one, Introduction to the Scriptures. And... Uh, this basically goes over these major distinctions in the Scripture. The differences between the various judgments, the difference between the two resurrections. You see, Reformed theology says there's just one general judgment, there's one general resurrection. The Scripture teaches otherwise. The difference between true believers and false professors. And just one thing after another, the difference between a believer's standing and a believer's state. Very important doctrines. And as a brand new believer, it helped me so much. Dispensationalism makes vital biblical distinctions. 
And now in the minutes we have left, I want to talk about the sad decline of dispensationalism. Why do we have such a decline? Second Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy chapter 4. Verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap up to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. You see, the time will come, we're told in this passage, when men will turn their ears away from God's truth, from all of God's truth, including dispensational truth. You see, the church in general is not loving and embracing and proclaiming the truth as much as they once did. So not only is dispensationalism in decline, but the truth of God in general. So we have that factor. Second, we have the influence of neo-evangelicalism. Not many understand that term today, but you need to. The following is taken from a very significant article published in 1956 in Christian Life magazine, and it's called, Is Evangelical Theology Changing? It was a very prophetic article. The eight points in the article proved to be an accurate reflection of what soon was to be known as the new evangelicalism or neo-evangelicalism. Here is one of the characteristics of this new movement, as quoted directly from the article. A shift away from so-called extreme dispensationalism. The trend today is away from dispensationalism, away from the Schofield Notes. In fact, many rarely use the word dispensation now. Dr. John Whitcomb, in his course on modern religious movements taught at Grace Seminary, listed seven characteristics of the new evangelicalism. And one of these was a shift from dispensational premillennialism to some form of historic premillennialism, together with a minimizing of the importance of eschatology or prophecy in general. On the back table is our paper called New Evangelicalism Identified. That's for free as well. Thirdly, we have the decline of dispensational books. Dispensationalists used to write tremendous books. There is a set of books called The Serious Christian. Probably most of you aren't familiar with this. It's a treasure trove of early brethren writers, these men who were the early dispensationalists. This is a 30 or 40 volume set. This is just the first volume. And to give you an example, in this volume is the book of Jude by William Kelly, the book of Hebrews by John Darby, and Behold the Bridegroom by a man named Wolston. I want to tell you how I got these books. I visited a farmer in Shippensburg, Pennsylvania. He's actually the, the man that my grandfather sold his farm to, his dairy farm. His name was Jim. 
he was a dear Plymouth Brethren believer. And we were visiting his house, and he showed me his library. And I saw these uh, 30 or more volumes. And he could kind of notice, he and his wife noticed I was sort of envious. <laughs> Coveting a little bit. And the farmer's wife was there, and she, she noticed that about me. And she said to her husband, Jim, you don't read those books too often. Why don't you give them to George? And I could see he was a little bit hesitant. But the next thing I know, they were boxing up all these books to put in our car. One of the best gifts I've ever received. Now, sad to say, dispensationalists are not doing as well in producing sound books today as they once did. Moody Press used to publish very good books. Not so much today. The general rule is, get the old books. That doesn't mean there aren't good new books, but the general rule, look for the old books. Reform men, to their credit, have dominated the Christian book market, and I would say many of their writings are profitable in many respects, but they are not dispensational. Another factor is the decline of dispensational periodicals or magazines. We used to have things new and old. Oh, this is way before my time, but by C.H. McIntosh. We had Our Hope magazine. The articles in this magazine, this was uh, 1942, were solid dispensational articles. This is a bunch of those volumes put together. This happens to be... 1909 to 1910, Our Hope magazine, Arno, Arno Gabeline, the editor. Tremendous magazine. And in more recent times, we had Good News Broadcaster, Theodore Epp, Moody Monthly. Today, not much by way of good dispensational periodics. We have Israel, My Glory, uh, Foundation Magazine. I had a few copies of those on the back table by Matt Costella. Grace Family Journal sometimes has some good articles, Duluth Bible Church, but it's hard to find solid dispensational material. And then we have the decline of dispensational schools. We used to have a lot of good Bible institutes, a lot of good Bible colleges. Most of them were dispensational, but where are they today? We had Moody Bible Institute. It's not now what it once was. We had Grace Seminary founded by Alba McLean, where I attended. And I can testify that it's but a shadow of its former self. It has changed so much. I would never recommend it to anyone. When I went there, it was a tremendous school. They even fired their best teacher, Dr. Whitcomb, for no good reason. Dallas Seminary, founded by the great Lewis Berry Chafer. Dallas Seminary was the fortress of dispensationalism. No longer the case. Now, in an interview with Christianity Today, this is back in uh, 1993. He was about to be the president. Uh, Chuck Swindoll was about to be the president of Dallas Seminary. He was asked about the traditional dispensationalism at Dallas. He replied, 
I think that dispensations is a scare word. I'm not sure we're going to make dispensationalism a part of our marquee as we talk about our school. When asked whether the term dispensationalism would disappear, Swindoll replied, it may and perhaps it should. Now here's a man about to be the president of, D- of Dallas Seminary who was seriously downplaying the importance of dispensationalism. And Dallas Seminary today is totally dominated by progressive dispensationalists. I don't have time to explain that to you, but there's a lengthy paper on the book table that explains that in detail. But consider this. If you think progressive dispensationalism is true dispensationalism, listen to this. Amillennial author Keith Matheson writes, The church suffers too much damage when people do not identify what they really believe. For the sake of accuracy, honesty, and understanding, progressive dispensationalists should no longer claim to be dispensational. It is not enough to redefine the essential doctrines out of a system and call the resulting opposite teaching progressive. Progressive dispensationalism is not dispensationalism. My hope and prayer is that they continue their journey toward Reformed theology. Since they have come a long way already, it only makes sense to discard the misleading title progressive, uh, progressive dispensationalism. That's a very enlightening quotation. So if you know of a sound dispensational school today where we can send our young people, please let me know, because it seems like such a school has become extinct, or at least on the endangered species list. Now, maybe you know of something. I'd love to to learn about it. Radio programs. When I was a new believer in the early 70s, you had the radio Bible class with M.R. DeHaan and his son Richard. You had Theodore Epp, back to the Bible broadcast. Through the Bible with Dr. Vernon McGee. Wonderful dispensational programming. And many broadcasts coming out of Moody Bible Institute. What do we have today? R.C. Sproul. John Piper, Al Mohler, John MacArthur. Well, isn't John MacArthur dispensational? I'm not going to answer that question. But reform theologian John Gershner is going to answer that question. I had to down on the phone one time. When you tell a person, I'm only mentioning this not because John MacArthur, because this is essential to the dispensational way of thinking. And John MacArthur, as far as I know, is getting as far out of that as any person who can still be called a dispensationalist uh, is out of it. And not all the way yet. But if a person... Now let me help you with that quote to give you the full quote. He's saying it, it looks as if John MacArthur is getting out of the vine. He's talking about getting out of the dispensational camp. John MacArthur has a very special place in my heart. He's a man of real ability. He's one of the dispensationalists who, in my opinion, is realizing the burden of this doctrine. I think he's trying to get out of it. John MacArthur, as far as I know, is getting as far out of it as any person who can still be called a dispensationalism, a dispensationalist is out of it, but not all the way out yet. <laughs> I'm just telling you what a reformed person says about John MacArthur. 
And where are the great preachers today? Where are the men like Harry Ironside? Where are the men like Lehman Strauss? Or Vernon McGee, who will take you through the Bible? Where are the men like Charles Woodbridge, who gave one of the most powerful messages I've ever heard at a IFCA convention on the subject of new evangelicalism? Get a copy of it. It's on the book table. You can fight over that one as well. There's not enough copies for all of you. Where are men like Carlton Helgerson? How many of you knew Carlton Helgerson? How many of you are glad you knew him? <laughs> what a blessing that man was. Pastor the church, the Open Bible, for over 50 years. And where do we find men like him here in New England? Where are men like John Whitcomb? Many of you know Dr. Whitcomb from the New England Bible Conference, where for about 16 years, every April, he came and spoke to us. Not that he was a great dynamic preacher, but he was a wonderful Bible teacher and a solid dispensationalist. Now, I need to bring this to a close. So let's try to encourage each other and so much the more as we see the day approaching. There's a Bible verse which summarizes where we find ourselves today. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, and the faithful fail from among the children of men. Psalm 12, verse 1. What can we do today? Well, Revelation says, strengthen the things that remain. There may not be that much that remains, but strengthen the things that remain. We're not going to get back to the days of Darby and Macintosh or Schofield and Moody. We're not going to get back to the days of the Niagara Bible Conference. We're not going to get back to the days of the early 20th century. God has put us where we are right now. And may we be found faithful. May we be a faithful, believing remnant. May God's truth be finding its home in our hearts. One of the favorite verses of the early Plymouth Brethren believers was Matthew 18.20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, Jesus said, there am I in the midst. There may, there may not be millions of us. There may not be thousands of us. There may not be hundreds of us. I'm thankful for the good turnout today. But may there be two or three of us, maybe more. And with Christ in our midst, that's all we need. Two or three with Christ is a majority. May we be found faithful, even though we may not be many. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your encouragement of our hearts that in these last days when things are falling apart round about us, we can look to the living God. We can look to your word. And Father, may you help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.